that's why I have a literal bird box in my bathroom. <laughs> because look, I I'm so, I sorry, do, yeah, Doctor Doolittle. Please pause there <laughs> and explain why there are both why there are innumerable animals, both live and dead, inside your house. <laughs> One is still alive, but I assume it's going to be dead by okay. tomorrow. So we were we were walking down the street, and we found an injured rock dove, which is uh, obviously an upgrade from the average pigeon, you must okay. admit. Well, I don't know. I mean, pigeons are just flying, disease-carrying rats. So what's what's the you difference between a rock dove? A, you know. Is it, is it a... Because a rock dove is prettier, and it's white. Well, it's more of an off-gray, okay. but it's it's a solid color, and it's off-gray, and it's very friendly. Okay. And well, you uh, just, they, they live on rocks. Yeah, and you just demonstrated so, evolution. I mean, there is a favorability towards the most adorable animals. I would have let it li- I would have let it die there in the gutter. But sadly, <laughs> I I live with a vet tech and they're like, No, 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 let's let's take it home and let's take care of it and try to nurse it back to health, or we'll euthanize it tomorrow. Okay. And that'll be a quick, easy death for tomorrow. <laughs> so right now in my bathroom I have a injured rock dove. And it, by the way, it's bleeding. That's how bad it's injured. It like tried to get out of this box and now it just spread blood okay. everywhere. So Do you know the circumstances of its uh, demise? Well its eventual demise? <laughs> <laughs> no, I do not, sadly. No I Um is it, is it would it be anything similar to what I witnessed recently on the corner of well I won't give street names, but it, this was outside the Church of mm-hmm. God, a Korean church in my neighborhood. Uh, I'm sitting in traffic, and I see a whir of gray just like fly by my windshield, and then behind, from behind the church, a, a giant explosion of feathers. And I'm like, oh, oh dear! No. Like clearly a pigeon, of which there are many in at this intersection, has just flown into the building. But then a second oh, later, a pigeon falls like literally inside the crosswalk, and then it, it, what descends is a falcon, <laughs> literally perched above its kill, <laughs> just searching around. See and. That's awesome. That's a that's oh, a Johnny gets death. better. Because okay. then comes a scene from Hitchcock's The Birds. All these crows start circling like, mmm, yum yum, dinner time. Because <laughs> presumably the the falcon, it's not a huge bird. I mean, it's still a pretty substantial bird, but it's not huge. Falcons, falcons are nothing to sneeze no, at. I, I know, it's true, especially when it's when it's being as murderous as this one was. It just sat there at the intersection, where it, now we're surrounded by all these all these um, crows start circling and landing on the on the adjoining power lines. <laughs> And so, yeah, that was the fun little uh, blue planet that I got to witness. <laughs> or planet, planet Earth, Earth Blue planet is only for our oceans. That's true. Yeah, we're yes. only looking at osprey there. Exactly. <laughs> Have you? Uh, actually, we've been watching Blue Planet two on Netflix, and ooh, boy, it is impressive. Really? Uh, okay. David Attenborough still got it. He still got it. Do you recommend being high whilst uh, enjoying it? Oh, do I recommend being high? <laughs> I recommend being high for most things, Greg. Hey, that's a, that's a fair point. Fair point. <laughs> yep. You, you, long-time listeners of Aspiring Snobs, of which, hello, welcome to our show, know that you and I love uh, cheating that lounge. <laughs> oh, like 420 blaze it up 24-7. <laughs> Indeed. <laughs> <laughs> that was a terrible sound effect. I just <laughs> <That> was, <laughs> you was can wonderful. clearly tell it's I, staying I, in, I am, yes. I'm on the toke. Bros. <laughs> and John, what better? Anyone want to go to a fish concert later? <laughs> Those are one of the hip brands we're into, right? Yes. Right? Right? Yes. John, come on. That's uh, fish is old news. I prefer Dave Matthews Band. <laughs> <laughs> the DMB. Yes, the DMB. This that's one DMB I'm willing to wait in line for. <laughs> Terrible, awful. <laughs> oh, come on, that was pretty no, good. No, stop your recording. It's starting over. <laughs> oh, okay, fine. <laughs> No, John, but I have a movie for you that we should enjoy on drugs. Okay, what would that be? Well, it's the film we're talking about today. A film that you and I had not seen before. The 1979 mm. Francis Ford Coppola classic, Apocalypse Now.
people might be wondering, guys, why are you doing Apocalypse Now at this present time, this weekend, now, today? And all I have to do is ask you, if not Apocalypse Now, Apocalypse When? I say Apocalypse And that now. is the greatest joke of 2019 you're going to hear on a podcast. <laughs> Please, no more sound effects. You're, oh, come on. That was hilarious. You're, you're puffing of a, of a jazz cigarette. <laughs> you demonstrated your inferiority of, of producing sound effects. How dare you? Well, also, John, this is our first episode of 2019. Mm-hmm. And wouldn't you know, Apocalypse Now came out at a year also ending in nine, so it's his 40th anniversary. Te- technically, yes. I'm not going to argue that. Mm-hmm. Any excuse, I will agree. Yes. Yes. However, you and I, while you and I had never seen Apocalypse Now from beginning to end before, mm-hmm. uh, we are very familiar with this movie uh, based on our sitting down and enjoying Hearts of Darkness, the great uh, pr- uh, documentary recapping this long, troubled production. Mm-hmm. And how. Yeah. And I can't help but feel like that's part of the reason why we've put off seeing this movie for so long is because we've seen the behind the scenes footage. So that's not it's it, it like there's no helping that coloring your experience of watching the film, unfortunately. Yeah, there's that. There's so much baggage behind the film. I think it's typified in in one quote here from Francis Ford Coppola. Like, mm-hmm. I don't want to. This movie isn't about the Vietnam War. It is Vietnam. <laughs> and so you could kind of, it really, and that really sums up not only just the the ambition of the film, but also its pretentiousness. Mm. Um, because th- that's what I can't like. H- how do you judge this movie? Because you and I are judging a movie product, but it's so clear that Apocalypse Now wants to be so much more. Yeah. So. I, so how how do you want to approach it? Like upon your first viewing, what was your what is your initial reaction? Or maybe maybe let's start maybe let's start from like the pop culture. What's your impression of the movie in popular culture? Like you know the ride of the Valkyrie scene, you know the scene of like Martin Sheen slowly emerging out of the wa- water in his can in his full body camouflage. Yeah. Well, the one and that you, always sticks out to me is obviously Robert Duvall as that colonel. I love yes. the smell of napalm in the morning. It smells yeah. like victory. Yes. But having sat down and watched the film from beginning to end, how how has that opinion of the movie changed? Um, it's funny cuz you still kind of you kind of like surmised it right on the head. It's like watching it now, I can't help but feel like and maybe this is just uh, it's also colored by my opinion of Francis Ford Coppola. It still very much feels like a product. It doesn't feel like a personal stamp of this is something that he needed to make. This is something he wanted to make <laughs> as a statement. Um, so on the one hand, it does feel a little disingenuous watching it, but also I can't help but deny the craft. And yeah. this is an absolutely gorgeous film. And I don't know specifically if it's because we, we watched it both on Netflix, let's be honest. Let's not deny uh, ourselves. No, yeah. That um, said, you're right. It looks absolutely stunning. Mm-hmm. Um, but I've... on the one hand, like... Yes, it looks absolutely stunning, but is this also a personal work where Francis Ford Coppola felt so compelled to make it out of like a, some kind of sense of artistic vision? I don't know, but that's also my kind of personal feeling about Francis Ford Coppola is that given his, uh, let's say, contemporaries like Steven Spielberg or George Lucas, it's like looking back at their films, those feel very personal and you can understand the trademarks that they bring along with it. Francis Ford Coppola... You know, obviously he's extremely talented. I don't know if he's ever brought to one of his films that kind of stamp. Like, I needed to make this based on, you know, blah, blah, blah. Like, I had to make this based on my experience growing up as an Italian-American or something like that. Okay. And I I, I felt that watching mm. this movie. It's like, mm. obviously this is no platoon. Like, Oliver Stone I, uh, went to yeah. Vietnam. Like, that at least feels like it has a personal stamp on it. I mean... Stanley well, I mean, Kubrick what, didn't so go you're, either. So but. you're doubting it's you're doubting it's uh, you're saying it's disingenuous. Is that what you're you're arguing? I mean, because you saw the Hearts of Darkness. I mean, you know how much personal toil. Francis yeah, that Ford is Coppola also true. That is also bringing true. this vision to life. Now, granted, what what are you seeking when you say also like Steven Spielberg and say Martin Scorsese and these other contemporaries had had some kind of earnest vision? Are you saying Apocalypse Now doesn't have that? Um, it felt, uh, you know, I think you hit the nail around the head. It does feel a little disingenuous a little bit at times. Like there are some mm. very intense scenes in it and I kind of understand what he's going for, but I can't help but feel like it's a man on a mission to s- make a statement, but not a personal statement. That uh, was my kind of feeling watching okay. it. Okay. Yeah. Oh, so, you, so you're saying there's a disconnect. You're saying that 
there's a difference between somebody an artist wanting to say 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 a big personal say a big statement. Mm-hmm. However, like he doesn't have any personal experience with it. I, I think that's no, where maybe no. there's disconnect because, as we said, it's an exquisitely shot film. Mm-hmm. I mean, it looks absolutely stunning. Like uh, Vit, uh, the cinematographer Vittorio Statoro, uh, he's an Italian guy. It doesn't matter. <laughs> <laughs> Has shot some incredible films, and Apocalypse Now is no exception. Mm-hmm. And th- that's what I was like amazed by. Um, like the opening sequence with uh, played under the doors. Like this is the end, mm-hmm. and like it's it's pretty obvious. Like you you've got uh, the star Martin Sheen's face overlaid with uh, images of napalm exploding, and you get a lot of shots like that throughout yeah. the movie. <laughs> and it's and it's very clear that yes, it's just his his psyche is is going in a, in, a, in strange darker directions. Like exactly. that that's obvious enough, and that's well done, but. I mean, there, there's a lot of different ways and a lot less uh, explicit ways or obvious ways that you can demonstrate that. And maybe that's where we're having some because we're having some difficulty following this film because, yes, he's want, like Francis Ford Coppola wants to say everything about the <laughs> Vietnam War. Not Maybe not just the Vietnam War, but like literal Hearts of Darkness because this is based on Joseph Conrad's novella, Heart of Darkness. Mm-hmm. So maybe he wants to say everything about humans' dark psychology and predilection towards violence and hatred and all that, mm-hmm. but he just doesn't have, it, it, all the circumstances surrounding the movies did not uh, enable him to do that. Um, again, if we're just going to judge this by a movie product, I think I think there's problems with the story and what exactly he's trying to say, particularly with the character played by Charlie Sheen, Captain mm-hmm. Willard. Absolutely. Because he's introduced as a, as a government assassin. Mm-hmm. And he's tasked with, uh, oh my gosh, like uh, monocle popping out, uh, assassinating an, an army <laughs> colonel who's deserted, and is one now of his leading. own, one exactly, of his own. and that, and is now leading a cult. So, yeah, and and when he's dropped on the ground with Colonel Kilgore, Robert Duvall's character, you see him like be a little bit naive, but how he's actually introduced is drunkenly dancing in his, in a hotel room in Saigon. Breaking mirrors and like desperately needing to like sober up before he's brought before his COs. Exactly. <laughs> so yeah. like, what is he? Is he is he really traumatized by war, or is he go- leading on a path to being even more traumatized by war? Like lose mm-hmm. lose his innocence as he's you know tasked with killing Colonel Kurtz. Like which is it? Yeah. Exactly. And I think it's it's because it depends because of where they were in the schedule and like what <laughs> sets were destroyed during a hurricane and what actors couldn't be there because of a heart attack or something. Like maybe that's why the story there seems to be. A disconnect there. I totally understood that too. Is like, all right, well, this the the narrative itself requires a, a protagonist who's green, who loses his innocence, but also at the same time, you want to capture that feeling of disillusionment that the Vietnam War brought to the soldiers, and obviously that that uh, post traumatic stress disorder that might have come along with it. So you want to capture that, but also like make him seem naive, and it's like, what are we fighting for? You also <laughs> want him to come to that realization. Yeah. So you can't quite have both. Francis, but you tried. <laughs> <laughs> exactly, and I think that's the other problem too, is because, like, it's uh, early January, so the Oscar nominations will be coming out soon. Mm-hmm. And what's been the biggest Oscar bait lately? True Stories. Ah, like, yes. uh, like, see the amazing True Story. And I thought, if you want to tell the story of Vietnam, wouldn't it make more sense <laughs> to tell the true story of a soldier? 
like mm-hmm. either in the Viet Cong or in the U.S. Army. And instead, they decided to apply Vietnam to this story that was written in the 20s. Yeah, exactly. Which had about no colonialism. Basis, yeah. yeah, no basis in Vietnam whatsoever. Like, yeah. the themes are still kind of prevalent, which I kind of appreciate the whole idea of imperialism and colonialism and stuff like that. But yeah, yeah I, I there is obviously a little bit lost in translation there. And... I think if we're going to, I don't want this to just become a complaint about the, because I think overall mood, atmosphere, great. Mm-hmm. And it's like, yeah, I feel like I'm judging a car. Like, you know, it's really good <laughs> ride and handling, but uh, the interior noise is bad and the front seat comfort is, is, is not up to par. And, and while we, we, we appreciate the cinematography, atmosphere, tone, score, I think mm-hmm. while we, while we admire those things, it's stuff about the story that doesn't quite add up either like um, either, thematically or logically because mm-hmm. as we said like either captain willard charlie sheen's or excuse me charlie sheen <laughs> he's a, he Same also went down a, he difference. also went yeah he also went down a dark path much one like of those him. estevez boys that's what yeah. they are <laughs> either either he starts uh either he begins in a low place psychologically or he starts out as green and naive and descends further into darkness as he tries to capture colonel kurtz mm-hmm um, same with the following two scenes where he's dropped in with Captain Kill, or excuse me, Colonel Lieutenant Kilgore. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, obviously having a blase attitude about the first this Vietnamese village, and then finally his like old his own soldiers, and just like I just want to surf. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, so like, which is like, it's it's not a good sign when that whole scene, the one of the best scenes in the movie, can be completely cut and not have any effect on the story. <laughs> That is an excellent point. I didn't even think of it that way. I thought it was I thought it was an interesting way to introduce the story because again, even though this movie is very psychedelic and kind of like ooh out there, it still has a very much of a three act structure. You know, the first act is we're introduced to uh, Martin Sheen character and him, you know, getting introduced to his mission. This is who, yeah. the guy you're going after, and you know, terminate his command with extreme prejudice. You know, they obviously don't say it, but it's like, you are going to kill this man. Yeah. And he says <laughs> um, <it himself>. actually, <laughs> yeah, he said, well, it also, he says it himself is like, I've killed many a man. Like, you know, he's obviously yeah. disillusioned and obviously he's not, it's not like he's going into something he's not prepared for either. Yes. And actually he does not acknowledge it. Uh, <laughs> thus proving that he also, uh, U S command would not order the assassination of one of their own officers <laughs> under desertion code. They would, <laughs> they would have to be brought captured and brought back to tribunal <laughs> and face court martial. Exactly. So this move, cold movies completely, Impossible. <laughs> there are no rules to war, man. <laughs> okay. Indeed, John. Uh, yes, the the U.S. Army has never ordered the assassination of anybody ever. <laughs> no, the the U.S. Army is nothing but a, if not above board. Okay, they're yes. the good guys. Indeed, the Marines are. join the Marines today. <laughs> um, super fi. Um, so yeah, so the first act is him just basically kind of like introducing us the audience to you know the horrors of war you know the first act is just this like constant battle stream with this very laissez-faire lieutenant obviously played by um robert duvall in a great mm-hmm. in a great turn i thought he was oh it, oh it's role. excellent yeah yeah exactly um and it, again it just kind of throws you right in they're going into battle they're like you know tearing through this you know village they're destroying it and mm-hmm. for what purpose so he can surf like (laughs) this is r and r and again there's that that first act is great because there's that great disconnect it's like they're doing all this for what rest and relaxation and they're all like hyped up and they're all like hiding in their little hidey holes and they're all terrified and it's like come on we're doing this so we can relax guys (laughs) yeah and it's and it's saying a a similar scene following that um when there's a uso show Mm -hmm. involving some playboy playmates Mm-hmm. And eventually it's disrupted by uh, overly horny soldiers. <laughs> and they have to escape. And it's also commenting on, like, well, who are the real savages here? <laughs> exactly, yeah. Uh, the second act I didn't appreciate so much because, again, it, it feels a little too scattershot and episodic. Well, Cause... As, as compared to the first act, again, yeah. you can completely remove uh, Lieutenant Kilgore in the USO scene and literally just have them dropped in the, at the mouth of whatever river they're going up. Mm-hmm. And it wouldn't have changed the thing. Story-wise. I guess that's true. Yeah, I guess that's true. <laughs> well, I guess this, would, this one, would make a great little short film, wouldn't it? Yeah. <laughs> well, one thing we need to keep in is our introduction to our main characters, John. I guess that's true. Which is unfortunately all delivered in voiceover. 
Yeah, I, I was going to ask you, how do you feel about the voiceover? Because at, at, well, at times I felt like it was completely superfluous, but at other times I'm like, all right, well, I kind of understand why they included this, because it, it, it feels necessary for the information regarding Kurtz. Yes, and I think, well, I was thinking of ways, well, overall I didn't like it. However, knowing the <laughs> knowing the trouble production history, like, it, it was a necessity. Like, mm-hmm. uh Francis Ford Coppola was cobbling this movie together after three years and said, like, okay, these are the shots and scenes we have. I have no way of making sense of it unless I add voiceover narration. So it's a lot of telling rather than showing, um, particularly when we're on this patrol boat. It's it's led by Chief, played by Frederick Forrest. Mm -hmm. Um, There's a young Larry Fishburne on the boat, (laughs) who's a 17-year-old from the Bronx. Uh, Uh, You might know him as Lawrence Fishburne today. (laughs) Uh, No, John, he's Morpheus. (laughs) (laughs) No, he's Grandpa on Blackish. Come yeah, on. Yeah, you're right. You're right. <laughs> There's also Chief, or excuse me, Chef. The Chief is the other guy. Chef. I, it must have been confusing reading the script, but Chef, <laughs> who uh, who's a representative of a young a youth who was just thrown into war. He had ambitions of being a chef in New Orleans. Mm-hmm. And instead, you know, succumbs to the horrors of war. And then there's also Lance, who I believe is like a, a pretty Southern uh, Southern California pretty boy. Yeah. I believe he's roped in by Colonel Kilgore to be to surf uh, these waves. Yeah, after, he's the after surfer. decimating this yeah Vietnamese village. Mm-hmm. And again, like I'll be honest, I thought it was pretty funny because again, like this young surfer guy who's just thrown to war is totally confused by the whole thing, and like Kilgore's giving him crap. Is like, come on, don't you want to surf? Come on, don't you want to enjoy yourself? <laughs> Well, I found it funny that Kilgore actually admires him. <laughs> that is also kind of weird. <laughs> yeah. You think well, this like then... brash military personality wouldn't like be so fond of the you know Southern California lifestyle, but apparently he enjoys it quite. <laughs> yes. That's what exemplifies why that particular sequence is so good compared to the rest of the movie is because we can surmise everything about Kilgore's character in within the drama of the scene. Exactly. The rest, the rest, Martin Sheen's character has to explain in voiceover, like, okay, this character is from the Bronx and he's a, you know, seventeen years old. This character is from New Orleans and he wants yeah. to be a chef. Uh, this character is a surfer. Um, this character, again, she, she, uh, she, uh, Chief, excuse me, <laughs> I'm, I'm just gonna confuse them both. But Chief has has no real backstory, which is mm-hmm. kind of a bummer. And so it's less compelling as drama. It would have been good if that was, you know, tossed out over the or if the stakes were raised um, when we characterize these characters within the scene itself, instead it has to be told told to us by Captain Willard. See, but that's the thing. I feel like, again, showing, not telling, I feel like this movie could have gotten away with just, the, just by showing, and it still would have worked. Like, for me, the voiceover felt, at times, pretty redundant. For example, for example the Kilgore character, uh, at one point, uh, he makes the comment like, oh, you know, Kilgore thinks he's bulletproof. And again, to exemplify that, every fucking scene he's in, there's explosions and gunfire going on around him, and he does not give and a he's crap. Completely, yeah, exactly, he's completely oblivious to any of it. Yeah, <laughs> like everyone else is like ducking their heads and like scared, and he's just like standing up straight, just like, all right, what's going on next? Let's see what's happening. <laughs> Which is great, and again, visually, that captures the story. So it's like the voiceover wasn't necessary there. Oh, definitely not. Yeah. Yeah. But but, it's, I understand, but I also understand that the voiceover is necessary when explaining 
Kurtz's character because half of the dialogue, half the voiceover is also like, oh, why did Kurtz go AWOL? He was like a, you know, super decorated officer. Like, oh, look at his whole history, blah, blah, blah. And it's like that he wouldn't be able to, you know, uh, connote without voiceover. So I also kind of understand that as well. But uh, Well, I disagree. I was trying to think of ways, again, playing movie doctor. Um, <laughs> Script stick doctor. The, <laughs> yes, stick the heart monitor underneath. <laughs> I was thinking of ways you could dramatize that. And then there was one like interesting twist that I found. And that's... Um, when Captain Willard receives a new dossier, mm-hmm. and it's revealed that a, another soldier has also been sent up the river to either capture or kill Colonel Kurtz, and it appears that he's been turned. Oh, okay. And it and it feels like, and I believe that was also delivered in voiceover. However, it felt like a, a twist to the formula, mm-hmm. at least, and a way to dramatize, like, okay, who is this Colonel Kurtz? Uh, maybe you have somebody on the po- patrol boat who know, happens to know him personally. Mm-hmm. Um, who who was like a again? There's a twist in the mission. Like, uh, wait, like this is supposed to be a classified mission. They don't know who Colonel Kurtz is. Like, but let's say you know the character Chief. Like he says, like, oh yeah, I know Colonel Kurtz. We went through basic training together. We're best friends. And then when <laughs> when it's revealed that his mission to, is to actually kill Kurtz, he's like, no way, I'm not having this. <laughs> yeah, and that would actually give something interesting to happen in the second act because yes. the second act is. Not boring, but it's just kind of like so disconnected. It's just them going up the river and they run into like these weird little, like they run into a tiger and it's like, oh, I didn't sign up for this, man. Yeah. Um, it feels kind of disconnected from everything else that's happening. Yeah. And I think that typifies my biggest problem with the film. Mm-hmm. It's not a thriller. No. And, and well, and I think that's because A, it's like, would, would you making a thriller, would that glorify the horrors of the Vietnam War? I mean, maybe, because that's what movies are designed to do. They're designed to, you know, excite us and get our hearts racing. But the movie doesn't really do that. And Francis Ford Coppola, as a filmmaker, doesn't do that. (laughs) Uh, You mentioned the tiger scene, which, again, is interminable. I mean, it's not until, like, almost two-thirds of the way through the movie that we have our first scene, um, like every scene in, say, a movie like Fitzcarraldo, (laughs) where they're just kind of traipsing through, like, slowly, you know, attacking upstream. And then finally they're attacked by natives, and we lose one of our patrolmen. Mm-hmm. Like that only that happens very late in the movie, and thankfully, like we have characterized. So when it does happen, it is devastating, um, and it finally feels like as a dramatic product, it's finally working. <laughs> but it's a, too, a little too uh, too little too late for that. Yeah, and uh, the other thing too is like again the whole theme of adaptation. Obviously, the story was wasn't in, intended to take place in Vietnam. Yeah, and the horrors of Vietnam are obviously worthy of telling a story about. But the fact that we go from, like, the horrors of Vietnam to, like, the savages chucking spears, it's like, it kind of, to me, also completely felt like it was something out of a different time or place. It's like, just knowing what the Vietnamese people, unfortunately, had to go through Mm -hmm. under the, you know, boot heel of the American military, like, that's enough on its own. But then also to kind of imply that it's like, but there's also these untouched people up in the, you know, (laughs) the dark continent in the Orient, (laughs) you know, also kind of... It felt a little tone deaf to me, and again, going back to what I was complaining about, where it's like this doesn't feel like a personal story. Yeah, like the fact that he felt the need to include that, or at least to include it wholesale from the original story, also kind of in my heart feels a little disingenuous that he didn't feel like he needed to update. It's like, well, obviously they need to be savages. <laughs> like, obviously we need to have like you know the the dark, scary people you know included in this. Well, John, to be fair, it is a rainbow coalition of savages. <laughs> oh, of course, <laughs> there are, of course, uh, people sa- uh, native to Southeast Asia. But I saw I saw a few black faces sprinkled in there. I saw a few white sp- white faces sprinkled in there. You do see mm-hmm. the soldier who, as implied earlier, turned and is now mm-hmm. under his command <laughs> yeah so i uh, i don't know a touch of progressivism there i don't know <laughs> but yeah let's talk about this third act because you're right it does feel completely disconnected from the rest of the story about vietnam mm-hmm. because I, I don't know unless in platoon they run into you know these untouched people <laughs> I, I don't know if this was part of the vietnam story mm-hmm. uh and i think what they're what we're building up to feels, you're right, does feel completely disconnected from the rest of the Vietnamese story. Mm-hmm. Uh, we're not talking about Viet Cong versus American forces anymore. We're not talking about, you know, the threat of communism versus, you know, capitalism anymore. Now we're talking, now we're straight into Conrad's story about, say, the heart of darkness and madness at the center of this uh, uncivilized world. Exactly. Yeah, or maybe the power of colonialism, you know, poisoning Kurt's mind. Who knows? 
Exactly. Um, because that's the thing. It's it's too ambiguous. And I think part of that's because of who they cast as Kurtz, Marlon Brando. <laughs> Brilliant though he is, I, I would have hoped to get a better actor. <laughs> I, I think he actually, again, like, and again, our opinions are obviously colored by seeing Heart of Darkness first. Yeah. I think he did actually a supremely good job based on how little preparation he actually did for the role <laughs> that I know he did for the role. I think he actually did a pretty spectacular job. I mean, again, the whole point also was that he was supposed to come in, like, obviously looking, like, gaunt and, like, skinny. Like, he mm-hmm. hadn't been touched by civilization whatsoever. And then Marlon Brando shows up, like, fucking 300 pounds overweight, not mm-hmm. knowing any of his lines. I think he actually did a pretty good job. Yeah, that's true. Well... And having to improvise those lines, yes, like a plus mm-hmm. job. I believe he he improvised one of the money lines in that, like you know, our, I believe uh, he asks uh, Captain Willard, "Are you an assassin?" He mm-hmm. responds with, "I'm a I'm a soldier," and you know, if he feel, that feels like a good retort, but rather it's like, "No, you're not a soldier. You're an errand boy collecting yep. a bill." And <laughs> sent so, by grocery crooks. Yeah. <laughs> So that's a great improvisation there. And I believe that's when they finally reveal his face, because as you, as you mentioned, he was about 100 pounds overweight, <laughs> and they had to cloak him in shadow. And that's one aspect of the movie where the HD era does not help, because <laughs> I was distracted by how fat he was. <laughs> okay. Yes. I say that because you and I are not fit people, but if you stick us in a movie, our, 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 the negative aspects of our physique will stand out. <laughs> and, and that's certainly the case here. I'm sorry. Look, I'm, the camera I'm sorry ends. the ghost of Marlon Brando. You're a brilliant actor. The camera adds 10, 15, 70 <laughs> pounds, okay? All right? You can't judge. All right? This you can't is, judge. I know. I, exactly. And that's why I, you know, <laughs> add the caveat that you and I don't look like movie stars, so. Did they tell you? They told me that you had gone totally insane and uh, that your methods were unsound. Are my methods unsound? I don't see method at all I expect someone like you what did you expect are you an assassin case marlon brando brilliant actor and improviser though he was maybe it just wasn't physically up to the movie I, I, yeah i don't know i again it's part of the disconnect like uh, i wish like i don't know some angel investor could have come and said like hey here's a brand new set uh francis ford coppola here's uh ten thousand dollars in angel investing and, and finish your movie properly no and instead they kind of had to scramble here um i did like how effective some of the the chills were in this in this final act. Mm-hmm. Um, you mentioned that the character of Chef um, is part of the patrol boat. Um, Ca- uh, Captain Willard is taken prisoner, and to intimidate him, they cut off uh, Chef's head and leaves yeah. it him and mm-hmm. his like not even a jail cell. He's so tightly wound. It's well, and it's also great because it also doesn't lead you into that. Like we yeah. don't really see Chef get like captured or anything like that. It's just like literally we see Chef kind of like freaking out, and then the very next scene we see uh, Martin Sheen's character tied up, and then what do we see? Chef's head in his lap. And yeah. again, like I was like kind of confused at first. I'm like, what happened to Chef? And I was like, and then you know, once he rolls his knees and he realizes the head's not connected to anything, it's like, oh holy shit. <laughs> so I kind of appreciate it on that level. I mean. How did you feel about the whole kind of like psychedelic tone that this movie's kind of going for? Do you, do you think it kind of worked, or do you think it was kind of like again? I mean, well, and again, this coloring our opinions are too colored. We know that this whole production was a complete mess. Yeah. So 
on the one hand, I want to believe that like the whole like drug infused tone was kind of like an intentional choice, but I also know that it really could never be. And it was just kind of like, all right, let's cobble together whatever workable footage we have and try to make it into a coherent narrative. Yeah, I I don't know. I don't know what to make of the, the psychedelic aspect of it. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it's it depends on whether it's Lent Credence by actors like Dennis Hopper playing this photojournalist. Like, mm-hmm. they're... If, if within the context of the scene, it makes sense. Mm-hmm. Like, because obviously they've entered this madness, this uh, this cabal of, you know, untouched natives mm-hmm. and, you know, uh, co- uh, cavorting with a, a photojournalist who's clearly out of his mind as well. Mm-hmm. And, and obviously fawning over uh, Marlon Brando's character. Like, yes, I can understand the psychedelic aspect. Um where again there's that disconnect is like Martin Sheen's character has to be either a straight arrow or somebody who's already in the darkness um, <laughs> so like that's that's where it disconnect I feel like it though it finally came kind of maybe together in this final act um, as, mu- as much as the film could um, <laughs> seeing as all the troubles they had <laughs> but again it depends on what the characters are doing within the particular scene. Like Dennis Hopper's character, yes, it's working. Uh, Marlon Brando's character going on a long, like, 20-minute harangue, like, yes, that's that's working. I can understand the mm-hmm. the psychedelic aspect to it. Um, this is why maybe when I wish, though, that they had consulted with a real Vietnam vet, maybe <laughs> suffering from PTSD, maybe relying on, uh, on substance to um, relieve his trauma or pain. Mm-hmm. That you know maybe maybe we could speak to it a little bit more honestly, because mm-hmm. as you said, th- there's something disingenuous about like wanting to make a grand statement about war and then forgetting it in the third act, or you yeah. know making all these literary pretensions like no, it's going to be Heart of Darkness and we're going to reference uh, uh, T. S. Eliot's The Wasteland <laughs> <laughs> or The Hollow Men or something, and yeah, like there's there, there's some pretentiousness to it as well. Exactly, and yeah. again, that's why I think that's why watching it knowing everything i do now i i i have that weird disconnect where it's like all right does this really feel like a artistic statement versus a personal statement and i feel like mm-hmm. francis Ford coppola was obviously like well it's the 70s i have to make some kind of statement about vietnam man yeah <laughs> and he tried to shove it into a story where it really did not belong and Again, given everything we know about the whole production history, it's like he made a pretty, a, a very good film, no doubt. Yeah. But, like, again, knowing everything I know about it, I can't, it can't help but color my opinion. And also, at the end of the day, kind of feel like, oh, well, was this really the film you intended to make? I, I deep down, I know it's not. And also, I know that. Well, deep John, down, I mean, it, come there's on. A, there's a to kind be fair, of, John. What artist is like makes exactly what they intend to. <laughs> I guess that's also true. Yeah, I guess that's fair. Um, but also, it's like, should I criticize it for also being like? I can't help but feel like it's also a bit of a cynical calculation, a little bit, where he kind that of too. knows that Vietnam is in the zeitgeist. So it's like, I yeah. have to make a movie like commenting on it. <laughs> Everyone's waiting for my comment, right? <laughs> yeah, I think I think you're right because they, originally they were going to do. This this production actually goes back to like 1968 when mm. public opinion of the the war was at its height and public opinion was turning, and Francis Ford Coppola and George Lucas were like, we're gonna make the 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 definitive movie about the Vietnam War during the Vietnam War, and, <laughs> and I thought, and I was also viewing it in the context of two other Vietnam War epics like Coming Home and the deer hunter mm-hmm. and you know was this you know francis ford coppola's you know putting his putting his big dick on the table and saying <laughs> no i'm right i'm creating the definitive statement on vietnam when in fact this movie this whole movie was shot and cut together while those two movies were like first being conceived so it mm-hmm. it's not exactly comparable to you know talk about all, th- all those three movies together yeah however yeah there's there's that kind of that cynicism does kind of um, kind of color my opinion of the movie, mm-hmm. and you're right. Like while I admire his ambition, I can't quite get over like this. There's this hump of the, of the pretentiousness and the and the arrogance to say like, oh, I'm gonna do the definitive, you know, Vietnam story. Yeah. Um, so while we can admire certain parts of it, you know, like like a car and its, mag- and its magnificent engine. <laughs> On a whole, I, I just don't buy it. It's yeah. it's not it's not coming home in my garage. Well, I mean, the other thing too is also you do need a few years separation, and I think the you know when we talk about the definitive 
film adaptations. I, I hate to use the word adaptations, but yeah, uh, you know, film representations of Vietnam. I do yeah. think the best ones came in the '80s after some distance. Platoon and Full Metal Jacket, which we did yeah. as the very first episode of this podcast. Hey, full circle. <laughs> <laughs> well, maybe that maybe that is a good comparison. Like, why do you think we admire Full Metal Jacket more than we do this movie? Because oh, again, I think there was that kind of distance where, and also that one is kind of. I, it feels like it's telling more of a complete story about mm-hmm. that one. Also, is an adaptation, if I'm not mistaken, correct? Well, yeah, it's based on a. Well, I believe it's a fictionalized memoir. Mm-hmm. Sort of, or yeah, maybe a, a semi-autobiographical novel, I should say. <laughs> yeah, but that one also was intended to be about Vietnam, which Heart of Darkness, yeah. the original novel that which this movie is based, is not meant to be about Vietnam. And yeah. while the themes are still obviously prevalent there, it it does feel a little disconnected, a little bit. Like again, the the whole idea of savages being in Vietnam, <laughs> <laughs> these untouched cultures, <laughs> yeah, chucking well, spears, I, yes. <laughs> And I guess you could push back. You, I believe you just said Full Metal Jacket tells a more complete story. It's literally it, that movie's literally cut in half. <laughs> I guess it's true too. Yeah, but you're right in terms of that. It's telling some soldiers' experience, like personal experience with the war, mm-hmm. and somehow that feels way more honest than this, which is trying to take you know post World War One literature and apply it to the madness of Vietnam. And mm-hmm. when honestly, yeah, none of them had any actual experience or exposure to it. Yeah, I guess that's, so, yeah. that's also yeah. the thing. It's like, like again, I think also Platoon works because, again, Oliver Stone actually went to Vietnam. He actually saw yeah. it firsthand. Yes. Whereas, like, Francis Ford Coppola, you know, <laughs> you and know Southern <laughs> California fancy boy never saw yeah. combat. <laughs> and to be fair, Oliver Stone had something definitive to say about mm-hmm. the movie and mm-hmm. could realize that through the filmmaking process. <laughs> uh, Francis Ford Coppola, I don't know if he had anything definitive to say or could realize whatever he was trying to say mm-hmm. through hurricanes, uh, cast members having heart attacks, and <laughs> actors not being prepared or memorizing their lines. Yeah. Well, I mean, in, in Marlon Brando's defense, yeah, uh, he never showed up knowing any of his lines because he thought he got a more earnest performance out of doing it on the spot. So, And again, it kind of worked for me. I thought you know, he gave a great performance. I mean, again, knowing that, you know, he came unprepared, a fucking hundred pounds overweight, yeah. <laughs> I can't help but feel like, all right, how much artistic integrity did you bring this production, Mr. Brando? But I think he actually did a uh, pretty decent job. So, you know, credit to him. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. And, and again, give credit to the movie. Um, but I don't know, like in terms of like the accolades, like this being the uh, 20, among the 20 greatest uh, films of the 20th century, is if you can even assess <laughs> such a thing. <laughs> I don't know. Yeah. Uh, I, I think it's a very good movie. It's a very good performance. Do I put it in the slot of greatest of all time? No, absolutely not. Again, that's what this podcast is for. We rewatch yeah. these movies and realize, like, <laughs> I mean, is it as good as Shaun of the Dead? I don't think so, guys. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> yes, I've, we're lending something to the conversation. Two idiots <laughs> with no expertise in movies, <laughs> trying and failing to talk intelligently about a film, are lending their voices yes. to why a film is actually bad. You know what the world needs? Two more perspectives of two white guys. That's what it is. Yes, <laughs> yes. John, let's lend let's lend the world a little more whiteness. Uh, please, I've been waiting. Please, yeah. <laughs> with our signature section, and I believe everybody in the sound drop is white, with the exception of Morgan Freeman, honorary white. <laughs> ouch, ouch. With our signature section, spotlight. 
Spotlight. Spotlight. Spotlight. Spotlight. It's time, Robbie. It's time. Ah, yes, Spotlight. The time where we where we either uh, reveal our bona fides or completely absolve them, like completely okay. watch them dissolve in a in a puff of smoke. <laughs> yes. So, John, why don't you reveal your uh, recommendation this week? <sighs> well, that's the thing, Greg. I I've I've been going over in my head nine million times of how I how I introduce this, how I preamble into this, into my recommendation, because I could do, go about it a million different ways. I could yeah. either admonish the whole uh, cinema critiquing crowd and be like, they got it all wrong, or I could say that I'm a man of the people and I, I appreciate this film on a level that no one else would ever possibly understand. Because over Christmas break, I got the chance to watch Aquaman. <laughs> And let me tell you, I was really hoping you would say Bird Box, but go ahead. (laughs) And let me tell you right now, Aquaman fucking rules. Okay, it is one of the best movies I saw in 2018, and I I am so mad at myself that for our for our year end wrap up, I could not include it in my top five because I hadn't seen it yet. But it is a baller ass movie, and it fucking rules. John, I can't believe I've deprived myself of not being able to see Aquaman in theaters on the biggest screen possible, presumably. Um, but to John, those go ahead. who say, but John, oh, go ahead. the Hollywood Dream Factory is over, excuse me, they made a movie about an aqua man, okay? <laughs> an aquatic man? What he is more. Hollywood Dream Makers I, think I swear next? to God, this happens at one point in the movie. You have uh, the guy who plays Black Manta. You know, yeah. it's like, they're in a sub and they've been hit. They've been hit. They're like, oh, what is it? It's like, oh, we're checking the radar. It looks like we've been hit by a missile. And then, I swear to God, Spielberg and push in into Black Manta's face and he goes, that's no man. <laughs> then he fucking crashes down through the sub and goes, permission to come aboard. It's the coolest fucking movie. <laughs> okay. John, do you have any more reasons why uh, Aquaman bricks? Several! <laughs> Go ahead. Um, okay, so there's seven undersea kingdoms. Once Atlantis okay. sank, there were they di- they were divided. They were split into seven different kingdoms, and obviously Prince Orm, you know, mm-hmm. current ruler, king, king presumed of Atlantis, wants to bring war, surface world, for uh-huh. polluting and destroying the ocean. But by Atlantean bylaws, he needs a, a simple majority. He needs at least four of these kingdoms to agree to go to war on the surface. All right. And I know, I know. But John, will he get the votes? <laughs> I know what you're thinking. Men go to the ocean to be free. Okay, it's international waters, but apparently, yeah. underneath the surface, all all rules apply. So <laughs> he's played by Patrick Wilson. Uh-huh. You know, doing his great commanding, operatic, everything he can do to give Ocean Master the character he deserves. Okay. <laughs> by the way, I had no idea he was a Broadway star. I like him as like a character actor, but I had no idea he was like in the effing Phantom of the Opera. <laughs> Oh, he's great. I love Patrick Wilson. I, I want I, him I to too. stay. But I want like him to stay at the current roles, level like he's at. Something. I had no idea he was also like a showman. <laughs> and and putting all those skills into playing one of the greatest villains in cinema history. <laughs> Ocean Master. He wants to claim the title of Ocean Master. And what's great is they... they we're, we're, like, guys, we're so spoiled. All right, They're trying so hard to actually recreate the comic like page to screen as close as they can. And so they get the Because they ocean... don't have imagination, but okay. <laughs> that also that's true. <laughs> well, so they've given up as like, uh, okay, people are gonna come see this shit anyway, so we might as well just do it <laughs> as yeah. it's done. They literally do their best to recreate Ocean Master's costume. So Ocean Master wears this like uh metal chrome mask. Yeah. Um and then uh Patrick Wilson doesn't wear it till the very end when he's actually, you know, by the bylaws, now he's declared Ocean Master. <laughs> he he's got the civil majority. Sure he had yeah. to go to war with the Kingdom of the Brine, okay? <laughs> by the way, he 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 murders the king of the fishermen so he can there's a lot of plot. All right, follow me if you can. <laughs> he kills the king of the fishermen so he can get the fishermen people on his side. The fishermen are the mermaids, okay? But then he has to go to war with the Kingdom of the Brine, which are the crab people, in yeah. order to get the last vote that he's required by the bylaws, the simple mm-hmm. majority, in order to declare himself Ocean Master. But he's also kind yeah. of declaring himself Ocean Master regardless. So, you know, because he's, he's a megalomaniac. Um, uh-huh. Okay, but anyway, he puts on the Ocean Master costume. And it's very it's very realistic to the 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 page to screen adaptation of the comic book hero, um, and it's this metal like reflective chrome esque mask, uh-huh. but also in the scenes he's required to like get angry, so you can kind of see like the weird metal like chrome 
brow furrow and every time it did that i was like this is ridiculous and i love it (laughs) this is after he declares war on the crab people so anyway he declares war on the crab people this is the kingdom of the brine this movie literally has crab people in it yes and it's fucking awesome do they sing no they do not sing oh what the hell that's the only thing that's missing from this movie is it needed to be a musical (laughs) it's already so over the top and operatic and ridiculous it's like it only needed to be a musical with jason momoa being like i don't need to be king i shouldn't be king Well, he's he's essentially uh, Maui from Moana, right? So I guess he should that's... be singing You're Welcome. Uh, Patrick Wilson could sing a song from Fan of Lady Opera. And the Crab People could sing the great song from South Park. Crab <laughs> people. Crab people. Or they could... Folks, it's all right here. <laughs> or they could sing Shiny. Watch yeah. me dazzle like a sunken pirate. I will be biased. I love the Pirates of the Caribbean movies, the first three. And I think mm-hmm. it's because, like, give me any production design that's, like, encrusted with barnacles. And I'm just like, I am so there. <laughs> just inject it directly into my veins. Yeah. Like, for some reason, I just love, like, under, like the whole idea that movie magic allows us to realize, like, underwater or aquatic worlds. I don't know. I'm just like, I'm totally sold on it. Even mm-hmm. though the movie itself does have some problems. Uh, mm. Biggest one, the title cards. All right. It's called the lower third, people. Not the lower tenth. Okay? Because I had to, like... <laughs> I had to peer over my seat for every single title card. And how am I supposed to know I'm in the Kingdom of the Brine right now, okay? I believe, I believe that's an issue with the projection. You think so? Yes, because obviously any um, any editor worth their salt mm. knows the title safe area. Mm. So when that happens, I believe it's an issue with the projection of the theater. I think you should go ahead and call and complain, whatever theater you saw this at. I don't know. I don't, I don't think so. I think nowadays people people feel the need to be a little more creative with their title cards like i was mm. i there was i was at a bar the other day and they were playing uh captain america civil war and remember yeah. those title cards it was like literally 90 percent of the screen like budapest yeah. Berlin. And fucking futura <laughs> like oh budapest you're in budapest right now motherfucker <laughs> whereas like here i felt like because it's it's weird because it's like you know it's like it's like Portland, Maine, you know, for one scene, and then later, Kingdom of the Brine. So I felt like they had to, like, or Kingdom of the Fishermen, but also, uh, you know, Montreal. You know, they, they, they go to, like, all these very terrarian locations, but also these very fantastical locations. Like, they literally go to the center of the earth in this movie. <laughs> And it's literally as fucking Jules Verne described it. There's dinosaurs down there. It's great. It's awesome. This movie has everything. It's great. Have I have I oversold this enough? This movie is awesome. Yeah, I know you haven't. I was about to say, I was just about to cut in. Maybe the title designers were a little bit embarrassed that they had to write, like, Kingdom of the Brine or the, the literal center of the earth. So it's like a little tiny thing. Whereas, you know, in Ca- in Captain America Civil War, they could be like, yeah, Budapest, uh, tax breaks. <laughs> Some African nation where we, yeah. could, where we could film cheap. Atlanta, Georgia. <laughs> Hollywood South. Yes, but Aquaman, great movie. I loved it. I loved every I, yes, second of John, it. John, thank you, thank you so much for your passion. <laughs> I greatly appreciate it. And I don't know how the hell I'm going to follow that. <laughs> I'm sorry, I should have gone second. But I, I, so wanted, I, I, I couldn't contain myself. So that, Exactly. No, I'm glad you did. <laughs> Now our our listeners can obviously cut out because what whatever I'm gonna have recommend isn't anywhere worth it. But hey, over Christmas I got a great graphic memoir. It's called All the Answers by Michael Kupperman. Uh, it's about his father being uh, hailed hailed as a child prodigy and how it affected his life and his relationship with his father. Um, he got in a quiz show like scenario where he was on a game show where it was rigged. Mm-hmm. Uh, I wish I had read it before Quiz Show, but I hadn't gotten to the book by then, so I've got it now. And again, uh, beautifully illustrated by Mr. Kupperman. Uh, I believe he's he's only he's solely worked in comedy. Like I was reading the the jacket blurb, and he had gotten all these accolades for cartoons in like the New Yorker and I don't know, Harper's and McSweeney's and stuff like that. But this is like a a real investigation into his relationship with his father and how it got so messed up by his grandmother basically being a stage mom. And you know his grandmother was the stage well, mom. Yeah. Well, yes, well, yeah, his for his father. Oh, interesting. Oh, because the father was already kind of like a quiz show master, so it's like, well, you have to follow in his his footsteps? Is that what they're saying? No, it's more like um, he felt a distance from his father Mm. because he would never talk about his past. Uh, He didn't have any relationship with his extended family because um, he was so kind of traumatized being a celebrity 
and uh, being a young celebrity like he's only 10 years old and he's like forced to be in movies with um like uh, the uh stars of singing in the rain or something uh, <laughs> oh, okay. I, yeah <laughs> And like touted around, and um, he's also he's also Jewish, and he's forced to meet a noted anti-Semite Henry Ford. <laughs> oh, so, okay. yeah, so a lot of interesting little uh, events like that are captured. Well, he also knew a Gentile was going to be the next champion, so they were going to be giving him the next, you know, <laughs> the answers next. So he knew he knew his time in the spotlight was limited. <laughs> <laughs> exactly, and following that, like. He he was so desperate to preserve his integrity, but then here comes this opportunity for the game show, and he said like, "Oh, I have to feel like I feel like I have to support my family mm. using my skills as a as a math wizard and um, trivia uh, trivia buff." But you know, again, he was lit- he he wasn't quite like directly given the answers, but he was whole he was part of this whole scandal that completely destroyed what everybody thought of was authenticity on TV. So oh. he's, he's then like labeled as a liar and a cheat. So. And and America would never bounce back from that. No. <laughs> back from the 1940s, they were like, wow, TV's always been fake. Yeah. How will I ever watch again? Exactly. So it's a good graphic memoir, quick read. Uh, again, beautifully illustrated by I'm going to have Michael to borrow Cooper. it from you because you know yes, I love it. Yes, go ahead. Yeah, memoirs. I think I'll like it a lot. But again, I can't even match a tenth of the enthusiasm that you have for Aquaman. <laughs> uh, and I feel like nor, nor should I. Um, <laughs> I'm sorry. I wanted I wanted to spring this on you. I wanted to surprise you how much I love Aquaman. <laughs> and I, it was normally such a I would I, normally I would warn you before we started recording. It's like, by the way, I'm gonna I'm gonna go ten, 11 out of ten. You're gonna, go, you're gonna go cuckoo banana pants for <laughs> Aquaman. So thank you for not warning me. Okay. And again, I'm hoping my enthusiasm got across. I want everyone to see this movie. Uh, granted, it's already won the Christmas Vacation weekend. Yeah. Uh, more than Bird Box. What the hell was I thinking about? Like Bird Box. Like oh, oh it's a- garbage movie. Garbage. <laughs> also fake, uh, fake enthusiasm. It's all bots who were fucking tweeting about it. You're right. Yeah, you're right. And then oh, hey, what do you know? Netflix now will finally reveal our numbers when it's a success. Hey, <laughs> <laughs> we won't reveal our failures, but wow, forty-five million views. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> huge. Yeah, Aquaman sold that many tickets in one hour. All right. <laughs> And it deserved to, because Aquaman is <laughs> fucking awesome. Yeah. So if we could sum up, if we can tie a bow on this particular episode, the bottom rung, you know, virgin, high school nerd, yep. <laughs> apocalypse now. I'm like, oh, I'm an artist. Yeah, whatever. Um, <laughs> upper upper rung, all the answers by Michael Kupperman. You know, very personal vision, personal statement that he's trying to make. Exactly. Uh, not pretentious at all, like, like uh, apocalypse now. And then top rung, the daddy, the chat, <laughs> Aquaman. It has a fucking kraken in it, uh, and yes. and the resolution is actually quite brilliant because you know it's okay. Like, oh, Aquaman's like a he's like a big tough guy and he fights, but it's like when it comes to the kraken, it's like no, let's talk, let's like oh, be wow. diplomatic about it. Sweet, because he talks so to fish. He talks it's, to fish. That's right. Um, John, I I haven't seen the movie. I've only seen the trailer. Are there in fact sharks with laser beams on their heads? Uh, <laughs> is there ever? <laughs> nice. We are are talking... there crocodiles with laser beams on their heads? They're not crocodiles, Greg. They're mesiosauruses, okay? <laughs> I, forgive me. <laughs> They're the same animals as in uh, uh, Jurassic World. For some reason, that's become the mascot of Jurassic World. Why is that? Why have we let this happen? I, Moses, I don't know, because they assumed that, hey, the big dinosaur that jumps up kills the <laughs> adversarial dinosaur saves the day obviously that that's the one that everybody would have their affection for i guess i mean it's bigger than a t-rex so anything that's bigger than a t-rex i guess is more exciting yeah <sighs> who knows size does matter john godzilla in 1998 <laughs> proved it you should do a twitter poll does size matter <laughs> and then you go <laughs> and then you go mesiosaur t-rex kraken yes and if kraken wins then we'll know for sure Yes, and the, the Kraken is Godzilla. I, we gotta include the 1998 Godzilla, John. Come oh, on. of course, of course. He's yeah. the king of the monsters. Yes. In fact, John, how will people find that Twitter poll? <laughs> I've got an idea. Oh, I do, do you ever? <laughs> yes. It's on our official Aspiring Snobs Twitter page at Aspiring Snobs. Exactly. You can find that Twitter poll there and vote and engage with us. Engagement. That's what we're here mm-hmm. for, people. Yes, we want to engage with the whole aspiring snobs community. Tell us what you thought of uh, Apocalypse Now, Aquaman, <laughs> all the answers by Michael Kupferman. Just let us know. All the A's, just all A titles. Yeah. 
But hey, if, <laughs> if if you're tired of all the negativity on Twitter, all the anti-Semitism, why don't you come to a page where everything's working out? Let's go to Facebook, because we also yeah. have a Facebook page. Nothing's wrong with Facebook, right, guys? No, nope. Facebook's yep. great. Yes, write a submissive about Apocalypse Now or Aquaman, mm-hmm. and uh, have that data, you know, shipped off to Netflix so they can make the next Bird Box based on. <laughs> They need more ocean-based stories, okay? That's the yes. problem with Bird Box. They're not in the ocean enough. We need to reboot Marco Polo. It did almost <laughs> work the first time. But this time, Netflix is going to do it right. Most people are like, this is going to be our Game of Thrones. I don't think it was, this is our Game of Thrones enough. All right, so next time, <laughs> they'll get it right. Exactly. Help. Hey, Aquaman had politics and, and getting out the vote and, you know, <laughs> votes of no confidence in parlamentary politics. So obviously that's what Marco Polo needed. Exactly. Not enough crab people. We need more crab people. <laughs> yeah. What, Marco Polo, nothing fantastical about Marco Polo. Oh, it's history. Whatever. Boring. <laughs> Boring. <laughs> I know. Go live in a library, you nerd. <laughs> and if you're a nerd and you're offended by that comment, you can always yeah. reach out to us directly. Send us an email at aspiringsnobs at gmail.com. Of course. Now, John, again, we're building a coalition, a rainbow coalition of people who want to be film snobs out there. Of course. And we do so by announcing what we're going to be viewing next week so that folks can watch along with us. Well, believe it or not, guys, they decided to remake a classic 2000 film from France called The Untouchables. Mm -hmm. And I don't remember what the new one's called. I think it's literally called Any Which Way. Something <laughs> something equally generic. No, it, I, I have seen some bus ads for it. It's called The Upside. In the fact, Upside, I'm, okay. I'm amazed that they're even promoting this movie. This this You're not going to hear from The Upside. It's going to be just dumped in theaters because it was lost in the whole Harvey Weinstein um, being a, a criminal sex pervert uh, story. <laughs> but it's got Kevin Hart, and he's on the up and up. Nothing bad yes, has happened in this This is going to be his Oscar role <laughs> on a movie dumped in January. <laughs> So yes, uh, in honor of the upside coming out, we're gonna re- yeah. we're gonna watch The Untouchables. Yeah, a film neither of you had seen, just like Apocalypse Now. Neither of one of us have seen it yet. Yes, it's it's a film from France, and mm-hmm. it got nominated for I don't know if it won. Did it win? Uh, I don't think it even got nominated. I know it was oh, like really? a hit. Yeah. Okay. All right. I'm that not sure if it got nominated, me. but I know it was a hit, mm-hmm. uh, both in France and abroad. It's on the top 250 IMDb list. Okay, so yeah. that's how you know it's good. Yeah. If it's worthy of being up there with um, Avengers Infinity War and American <laughs> History X, you know it's good. As, as uh, uh, Christopher Nolan's, all of Christopher Nolan's philosophy, <laughs> if it's anything like that. Even the prestige. Yeah. <laughs> God, I hate that movie. Can we just do an episode I, about how much I hate the prestige? That movie's garbage. Uh, it's, not, it's not garbage. It's, it's a, garbage. It's gar- Oh, we're going to have fucking look forward, look David forward to Bo- another. Look forward to another mild take from Greg. Like, yeah, it's okay. <laughs> we're going to have fucking David Bowie show up as Nikola Tesla. Fuck you. <laughs> Fuck that movie. Yeah. Oh, the, oh, this was about cloning the whole time. <laughs> Guys, this was a realistic movie about magicians. Let's introduce a teleportation machine just out of nowhere. <laughs> while we're at it, how about a microwave emitter while we're here? <laughs> Listen, if Christopher Nolan did not win an Oscar for that movie, it's not going to happen. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Which, I don't know what he's doing next, John. John, what should Christopher Nolan do next? I don't know. Something about... It, well, it, it obviously has to show off his, you know, uh, amazing editing prowess. So it has to be something, yeah. like, about time travel or something like that. I don't know. Oh, like, yes. what can he do that, like, uh, you know, fucks with your sense of time or something? Uh, 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 fine. A dark, gritty remake of Back to the Future. <laughs> That's what he'll do. <laughs> This time he fucks his mom. Yeah. Well, I'm John, I'm glad you mentioned that. Okay. Because as Harvey Weinstein demonstrated, a lot of people in Hollywood are horny as heck. <laughs> However, one man is not. He, he lives in a completely sexless universe. That is, of course, Christopher Nolan. Oh, of So course. I think for his next film, do a complete 180. I'm talking orgies. I'm talking... Oh. I'm talking, like, nothing but, like, intersectionality, every race, every every genitalia, every piece of genitalia, everything. I want Eyes Wide Shut meets Last Tango in Paris meets... I don't We're know, talking Lars von Trier shit right here. Yeah. We're talking, meets, like... Meets showgirls. I want them all. Come on. Come on. Come on, Chris Nolan, be horny. Show that bleeding heart of a man you claim to have, okay? Yeah. <laughs> Dunkirk's a very sentimental project for me. <laughs> yeah, clearly. Obviously. 
Look, he's a cerebral guy, okay? I wanted, yeah, I I wanted to do his passion project, too, but he's already done, like, all his passion projects. He's got know, nothing exactly. left. Where else is he going to go? <laughs> he's got nothing left. <laughs> I know. He's already remade his favorite movie of all time in his image. Uh, <laughs> he remade, uh, I'm speaking, of course, of 2001, Becoming Interstellar. Uh, mm-hmm. I, that's his favorite movie? That kind of surprises me. Yeah. Does it really? Uh, all right, fine. It's, it's cold and calculated and genius on every level. It was directed by a robot. I'm trying to think of what actually would probably be also in his top ten. I can't I, think uh, of he anything. said it somewhere. Yeah, yeah. I, Forbidden, I, I assume Forbidden Planet is also probably up there. That seems like something that would be in his wheelhouse. Like uh, I imagine sure. like four-year-old uh, Christopher Nolan sitting down at the drive-in in Lancashire. England <laughs> and being like, Mummy, I quite enjoyed that that picture. I uh, no, John, I believe that was Star Wars. Oh, okay. <laughs> yes. In a similar interview, I don't know if people know this, I'm a big Christopher Nolan fan. I watch everything involved with him. <laughs> but he did state that he uh he got his inspiration from Star Wars and Superman, so oh, okay. That's where he first made his first um with his action man figures, excuse me, while we're using Britishism. He's he's uh filming little eight millimeter films with his action man uh figures. That's what they called him, Action Man? Yeah. Or was that a they don't call was him that action a trademark figures. character? Like they couldn't call him like Superman, so they're like action man. I it's, honestly I don't know. Okay. I, I think it sounds better than figures, which is a bit fay if you ask me. <laughs> oh. <laughs> oh. We're having yeah. such a good time. Indeed we, indeed we did. But unfortunately, it's time to end. Thank you, everybody, for listening. Until next time, keep aspiring and stay untouchable. <laughs> well, now I know she has-